Welcome to the University of Washington's Political Economy Forum. We bring together diverse scholars, policymakers, and citizens to discuss current public policy issues, to inform the public about them, and to find evidence-based solutions. Feel free to visit our website at uwpoliticaleconomy.com. We publish new episodes of this podcast every week. If you have questions or suggestions for discussion topics, please contact us on Twitter at ForumUW or email us at uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Hello, everyone. My name is Nicholas Wittstock, and in today's episode, I am speaking to Carissa Villis. Carissa is an associate professor at the Faculty of Philosophy and the Institute for Ethics in AI as well as a tutorial fellow at Hartford College at the University of Oxford. Carissa's research focuses uh, on digital ethics, specifically on privacy and AI ethics. And she's the author of the amazing book, Privacy is Power, which makes the emphatic case for significantly strengthening regulation of technology companies to improve privacy outcomes for users. At the moment, regulation of technology companies is a really hot topic. Big tech is accused of anti-competitive behavior, but also of playing fast and loose with user data for all kinds of purposes, and as some argue, even endangering national security and liberal democracy. So Carissa's research on the ethics and philosophy of privacy in a digital age could really not be more relevant at this moment. And her book is indispensable, I think, in getting an understanding of the contemporary political economy of the Internet, uh, or at least large parts of the Internet's commercial side. And in the book, Carissa does a tremendous job tracing the unbelievable scope of surveillance that we have collectively somehow already gotten used to, chronicling the constant creation, collection, storage, trade, and use of data from literally everything we do or don't do, uh, everything we share or don't share throughout the day and night and everything in between. Uh, She then showcases the impact of data on our social, political, and economic lives, concluding that personal data is toxic and that privacy must be strengthened if personal and civil liberties are to mean anything in a couple of years' time. So finally, Carissa provides a list of remedies, which uh, I personally appreciated a lot, uh, remedies that would enable us to take back control of our data and to ensure that digital technologies serve us rather than the other way around. Um, And if you have not read her book, then I would really encourage you to go to a bookstore as soon as you can, ideally right now, but only after you've listened to this podcast, of course, uh, to get her book. It's a great read. Uh, You'll learn a lot. Um, One tip, make sure to leave your phone at home. Trust me, after reading her book, you will know why. But yes, don't go yet. Listen to my conversation with Carissa first. And as always, let us know what you think via email or Twitter. And without further ado, I bring you Carissa Veliz. Hello, Carissa Velis. Hi, Nicolas. Uh, Carissa, you are the author of Privacy is Power. Privacy is a topic that most people agree will be a major challenge for this generation, but around which I rarely hear much optimism, to be honest. So your book has the subtitle, Why and How You Should Take Back Control of Your Data. So we'll be able to hopefully end on a more optimistic note today. But to start, set the scene for us. How much of an issue is privacy really and what is at stake here? It's a very important issue. I think it's the one of the biggest issues of our time. And 
everything's at stake. Our stake at stake is our democracies, the way we live, the way we earn money, how we get charged for insurance, whether we have insurance, how politicians run their campaigns, what kind of power the government has. It's a really, really important issue. And we're not doing very well right now. Um, I think sometimes we don't realize how bad we're doing because much of what the rights and the privileges that we've gained throughout the years, we haven't lost them yet, but we're certainly putting them at risk and we should be very mindful of that. So just to give you a sense of the kind of data that we're losing and how it might be used, um, data about you is collected at all times throughout the day and night. At night, your phone is sending um, data about you that it collected throughout the day and it sends it at night so that you don't realize that your battery is running, is going lower, um, it's running lower because of that. So when you connect it at night, it sends data. Throughout the day, your location is being tracked and very sensitive inferences are being made with that. So for instance, just with um, location data, you can figure out where somebody lives, where they work, um, whether they might be having an affair because the other person has their phone with them at all times as well. Um, whether they're going through to a, psych a psychologist or a psychiatrist or whether they go to a family planning clinic. There are all kinds of really sensitive information from that. And then companies are collecting information about your health, uh, what you eat, what you buy, whether you drive fast or slow, whether, you, whether you're sleeping okay, what you search for online, and your purchasing power, all kinds of things. And they're using this data to try to predict what you're going to do next, to try to influence your behavior, and so in, in some cases to try to convince you to vote one way or the other, to buy something or not. And this, this data is determining whether you get a loan, whether you get an apartment, how long you have to wait when you call customer service. Sometimes it determines um, how long you have to wait when you go to the hospital. And all of this is being done largely underground without a consent, without our knowledge and without any kind of supervision or regulation. But um, aren't people freely choosing these products that are this intrusive? Uh, privacy or the trade in personal data is usually argued uh, should just be sort of the price for a lot of these snazzy new products, right? And if people don't want to make uh, this exchange, they can opt out. What do you say to that? Yeah, that's a narrative that is very common and that is suspiciously comfortable and kind of convenient for tech companies. And I think with the, with the pandemic, it's become really obvious how this is not voluntary. Yeah. In order to be a full participant in your society, you have to use a phone. You have to use um, apps like Zoom or Teams or it's, it's not realistic anymore to claim that people can opt out. So, so that's one thing. The other thing is that when, say, when, when you buy a chocolate or a product and there's a price for it, you know what that price is. And then you, you decide whether you want to pay it or not. But when people decide to use, say, Facebook, there's an argument to be made that they don't really know what the price is. Because you might mm -hmm. think, well, what do I care if Facebook knows what kind of music do I like? Mm -hmm. And yeah, I don't care either. But if that data is, is going to be used to infer, say, your sexual orientation, and then, then that's going to be used against you. Then the price might be too high, and 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 you didn't actually know what the price was when you when you agreed to give up your data. Right, there was no meaningful consent to to that exchange at any point in the uh, transaction. You also make the point that data is never personal; that data is by nature relational. Could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, one of the myths um, surrounding privacy is that 
privacy is individual. It's like a personal preference. Like, you know, you like vanilla, I like chocolate. And uh, we're, it's not that one of us is wrong. It's just that we have different per- personal preferences. And if you have nothing to hide and if, you know, you're not a criminal and you're not shy, then there's no reason why you shouldn't share your data. But that's very misguiding because it seems to suggest that when you share your personal data, the only one who faces consequences for that action is you. Mm-hmm. When in fact, that's not true for at least two reasons. The first reason is that your data contains data about other people. So when you share data about, say, your location, you're also sharing data about the people who work with you and the people who live with you and people ne- who live next to you, like your neighbors. Mm-hmm. And secondly, um, when you share personal data, that gets used in ways that affect other people. So one example is the Cambridge Analytica scandal, only 270,000 people donated their data. And with that data, the company made, well, first they accessed the the data of 87 million people who are the friends of these first people. And then with that data, they they used that to um, create a, a tool to profile voters around the world. And so that's a case in which it's very clear that the people who gave their data to Cambridge Analytica didn't really have a moral authority to give that data that was going to be used to try to sway an election. You go as far as saying that it's not ethical for anyone to share their so-called personal data because it always effectively um, implies that you share someone else's data in some very obtrusive way that you have no idea what that really means, right? So you make the example of um, genetic testing, for example, where even if you opt out personally, if you're a sibling, if even a very distant relative, or even someone that is not related to you participates in that service, that effectively means that they're giving up data on you. Yeah, so genetic data is a great example because most of your genetic data is shared with most of humanity. Mm-hmm. So only like 0.01% of your genetic data is actually only yours. And that means that genetic data gets used to triangulate information in order to find people in quite surprising ways. So it might be the case that a distant cousin of yours gets accused of a crime uh, because of a genetic test that you made, or somebody gets deported because um, there's a government that wants to prove that they're not the nationality um, that they claim to be. And there's no way to control this because there's no way to predict that's going to happen. You have, once you give up your genetic data, you have no control over how it's going to be used. Exactly, yeah. Um, You also, I think, make an important point that um, those are extreme examples, right? Where I think most people are relatively uncomfortable with them. But even relatively basic um, parts of your uh, consumer profile, as it's usually termed, um, are, are... possible to use to to predict someone else's behavior right because at the end of the day similar to the genetic example people aren't that different yeah so there are many theories that companies use to try to profile people and one of the tools that they use is um, using different personality traits so you know whether you're an extrovert or an introvert um, whether you tend to trust people or not I think that personality traits like that and that is what Cambridge Analytica used to try to profile users. So even if, say, you and I have never met and have never talked, but let's say that um, we have quite similar psychological traits, when you give information to Cambridge Analytica and tell them, you know, that people who are this and that way tend to have this and that tendency, um, then you're actually giving them information about me, even if we've never met. You argue in your book that privacy is power. What does that mean exactly? 
it means that we have been misled to think that data is all about money and you know that personal data is is valuable because you can sell it and that's that's actually true but even more true is that personal data is valuable because it gives companies and institutions power and that is more valuable than money because power can get you money but it can also get you a lot of other things like it can get you um influence in politics it can get you to not have to comply with law or not have to pay taxes it can get you a lot of other things apart from money and it means that there is a very tight connection between knowledge and power and we've known this for a long time so francis bacon argued that the more knowledge you have the more power you have and in particular the more knowledge you have about someone the more power you have over them and then michel foucault argued that the contrary is also true the more knowledge you have about somebody and the i mean the more power you have the right. more you get to to say what counts as knowledge so in the case say of google the, the more they know about you the more the more they get to tell other people who you are and they get to decide how you are perceived in society. So you get boxed as an individual of this and that characteristic. And some of, sometimes that might not be true, but you have no way to contest that because um, that information is not available to you. So in a way, the more knowledge these companies have about us, the more they can try to influence our behavior, the more they can manipulate our environment, and the more they get to decide what counts as knowledge in our society. And I argue that that power asymmetry is really bad for democracy. How does the link come into to democracy? Is it just the case that people's votes are steered in, in different directions or what else is happening as a result of these new technologies that, that you feel like um, threatens liberal democracy? That's a really good question. It's a combination of things. So on the one hand, yes, personal data is being used to build personal propaganda that is much more effective than normal propaganda and in that way sway elections. Personal data is also being used to fuel personal misinformation and that creates um, distrust within society and you don't know what to believe anymore and you turn you turn against your own citizens in, instead of realizing that there's somebody manipulating you um, personal data is also being used to undermine equality so equality is really important in society and in democracy to kind of um, so that everybody has the same opportunities and everybody feels included in society. Right, and right. when you're not treated as an equal citizen anymore, but on the basis of your data, then the opportunities that will be available to you are not the same as your neighbors or, or your friends. Um, but also just in a, in, in a more abstract way, but that becomes very practical very quickly. Democracy means that the bulk of power needs to be in the hands of the citizenry. Right. We don't have a king that rules us. But when there's such an asymmetry of power, then democracy gets weakened. So in the digital age, whoever has the data will have the power. If we give it to government, we risk sliding into different kinds of authoritarianism. If we give it to companies, it shouldn't surprise us that the rich are kind of writing the rules of the game in our society. And in order to have democracy be strong, we have to recover the data so that we have most of the power absolutely i only really understood this point interestingly uh, reading your book that you know the very idea of personalization the very idea of um, data analytics is to treat people differently right that's the fundamental idea that's the really that that's the fundamental business model really right so you cannot really have a situation where uh 
people are a treated equally or even have the same information or same media reality right that's the that's the selling point of this whole um, product line exactly um, the business model is based on discrimination and exactly. yet it's a kind of play on words because when when people say like you're gonna get personalized treatment you feel special right you think oh yeah. i'm gonna get treated as a vip i'm gonna get better treatment than the rest but of course nobody like if everybody gets personal treatment it, it means that vip doesn't exist anymore right and, and that's not the case actually it means that you'll be treated according to your data not better uh, and not equally yeah i think there's generally an underestimation of both the ambition and um, also already current capability of um, big technology companies as well as you know a lot of the uh, technologists who are usually uh, either academics or um, you know entrepreneurs who are very idealistic but then sort of get swept up in the commercial um, necessities of, of, of their business models and, and the way in which these people are seek to ultimate seeking to ultimately completely eliminate any barriers between your private behavior and data that is free to mine for for these companies and effectively be used by that entity that mines them in any way that they see fit. And it's a really important point that you're making in the book too, that privacy is completely anathema to these business models, right? That there is no way in this, which these companies can credibly say that they'll be doing better next time because that's just simply not how the business model works. Um, are you seeing any alternative um, business models that are still sort of based on similar uh, digital technologies? Or do you see the death of privacy being somehow inherent to these very technologies? No, I, th I think, you know, we can have both digital technologies and privacy. It's just we have to build them the digital technology in the right way. And there are business models out there that are working. So, for instance, DuckDuckGo is a search engine that doesn't collect your information. And the way it works is it doesn't need to know who you are, what's your name, where you live, and who you vote for. It just, when you search, say, for, I don't know, chocolate chip cookies, it shows you ads for chocolate chip cookies, and you don't they, don't, they don't need to know anything else about you. And then when you click on that ad and buy the cookies, then they get a cut of that. So that's a very kind of straightforward business model in which everybody wins. Okay. So is that the way that we take back control of our data, just um, sort of feed the right actors in this in this environment and um, ultimately rely on different companies? Or are there other things that need to be done? So we need to regulate. There's no way around it. But before that, we need to put pressure on politicians so that they will be able to regulate. But also we need to show companies that privacy can sell that it's a competitive advantage and that we're right. willing to pay for it. So, yeah, one thing is contextual ad advertising, which is exactly what I described, um, which is, you know, pretty similar to what we used to have in magazines and, and newspapers. When you buy a magazine, say, for sports, then that magazine is likely to have ads for sports gear because people who read mag sports magazine tend to want to do certain kinds of sports. So um, we need to go back to that model instead of having personalized ads. And we also need to ban the trade in personal data because as long as it's profitable to sell personal data, at least two things will happen. One is that companies will collect much more personal data than they need because they can sell it. So like, why wouldn't they? Um, but also they're going to sell it to the highest bidder because that's what 
personal data is is used for at the moment to to earn money mm-hmm. and that means that they're going to sell it to institutions that are not careful with personal data and that might want it for very questionable purposes and you know in in some cases um data brokers have sold personal data to fraudsters directly like to mm-hmm. people who literally steal from your credit card so we we need to regulate that do you think that there is anything like a public interest in this uh, in this level of regulation because you could argue that this would mean that certain things are being given up right that we wouldn't probably have access to the same uh, platforms with the same functionalities especially um, people relatively close to the tech industry argue that this privacy push is elite driven it's not something that is uh, popular um, publicly um, what are your thoughts on that so I think if people thought more carefully about what it means. So if, if I tell people, hey, are you willing to give your personal data in exchange for, you know, giving companies data about what kind of music you like, then most people will probably say yes. But if you ask people, hey, are you willing to give your personal data um, in exchange for your de- the democracy? <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, are you willing to make that trade? And I think then most people might stop and think well you know maybe not are you willing to give your personal data in exchange for being discriminated against when you ask for a job or when you ask for a loan then you know maybe people would say no so i think you know we need to make sure that when we ask people about these issues that they're truly well informed about what it means but furthermore i don't think it's true that we have to give up on the things that we love about digital tech in order to get privacy. I think that is a narrative that gets sold by by tech and that we buy it um, because it kind of sounds right. But we, you know, just like we have DuckDuckGo, which is very good, just as good as Google, um, there is no reason why we couldn't have a Facebook or a Twitter or whatever app you like um, with a different kind of funding. So, for example, already Twitter is exploring um, charging money to follow like really really big celebrities Mm -hmm. um in order to make the rest of the system free um so i think it's 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 actually actually not true that we need to give up on on the things that we like about digital tech to get privacy yeah at the very least i think for this argument to make any sense that people are freely choosing to buy into uh, these trades you need to be much better informed about what these actually imply so I think the first step of everyone should be to read your book to have a better idea of what exactly those exchanges are. So Carissa Villis, thank you so much for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wichdok. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.